Welcome back, everyone. Onward and upwards as we continue our investigation of the body. (laughs) So, uh, tonight we'll look at the 32 body parts. And I sent uh, the link to a website uh, later this afternoon. So, you may not have seen it, but you will when you open up your email later. And it has a lot of good materials, including you can listen to uh, talks about guided meditations on the 32 body parts. But we'll do one before we end tonight. And we'll end a little bit early. Sherry, or not Sherry, but Judy is going to talk about Donna or generosity for a few minutes before we end tonight. But before we go on to the 32 body parts, I thought we'd just take a little bit of time and review some of the meditation practices that we've been doing thus far. So the last couple of weeks we looked at postures and daily activities. And what's and I try to bring this up in the guided meditation, it's so interesting to see the relationship between attitude and how the body is. And it works both ways. The attitude affects the body, but the shape of the body, how the body's being carried affects the attitude. And so we can shift things around by how we're showing up, how the body, the shape, literal, the literal shape, posture of the body will affect who shows up in a moment. You know, if we're slumped and like if we are upright, like what's, what is that uprightness about? Is it an expression of fear? Is it an expression of integrity or interest? Because it can be all kinds of different things. Do we feel like uh, tortured and betrayed by the pain we feel in our body and sort of are starting to express some shape of helplessness, being beaten down by the unpleasantness of the body? Of course, it's very easy when we start to notice the relationship between the mind and the body to want to give up, right? But see, that's just feeding right back into it. So it's not about, oh, I should have this particular shape in my body. I should sit up in a particular way. Or It's just about a willingness to understand the relationship between the body and the mind. And so much of the work we're doing is healing the relationship. The mind is always knowing the body. Even when the mind is practicing being disconnected or in denial, that's the way the mind is relating to the body. And that relationship, you can think of it as a primary relationship and so much, of, or maybe all or almost all of our other relationships with other beings, other people, other experiences is somehow a reflection or a reverberation of our relationships that we have with our body. Bhante Gunaratana, this well-known Sri Lankan monk and teacher, said um, in his book on the Eightfold Path, if you relax your mind and watch your breathing without desiring calmness, without resenting the tension that arises, experiencing only the impermanent, only the impermanence, dissatisfaction, and selflessness of the breath, the mind becomes peaceful and calm. So if you relax your mind and watch your breathing, or you could say watch your 
bodily sensations, without desiring calmness and without resenting the tension that arises, experiencing only the impermanence, the changingness, the dissatisfaction. So not that dissatisfaction means that these sensations of the breath or the sensations of the body, the mind recognizes that they're not there to satisfy the ego. That's not actually the purpose of bodily sensations or the breath. And when we expect the experience of the body or the experience of the breath to give the ego something, that's the cause for frustration, endless frustration. So we're intimate with breath or intimate with body not to get some, not to be saved or to, be, to get something, but to realize that seeking solid ground with the experience of the breath or the body, that's not the place. And it's exactly that that leads to the calm, you know, that, that, uh, prog- that um, evolution or that development that I've talked about over the last few weeks and many of you have been sort of studying for a long time. And the Buddha talks about it in different ways, but the basic formula is something like things calm down, first usually in the body, because the way the mind is relating to the body isn't charging, you know, provoking it, prodding it. So the body begins to feel not prodded, not poked by the mind that wants things to be better or something like that. So the body calms down. And then as the body comes down, the mind that knows the body is less obsessed about making the body feel better. And so that mind begins to notice joy. Joy isn't something the mind creates. Joy is the mind recognizing that everything's moving freely, that free movement of all things. When the mind begins to intuit that, the mind notices joy. It's synonymous with seeing the naturalness of everything just doing their thing and the body and the mind. So beginning to intuit the frictionlessness of experience. And the more the mind recognizes that joy, the more the mind begins to trust the present moment. That's the ease. And the more the mind begins to trust, there's a deeper level of relaxation. The mind doesn't feel compelled to think or worry or plan or judge. So there's a deeper quiet and peace. So the whole development, the Pali word is bhavana, so the development of the mind is exactly that evolution or that progress or development. And it comes about by understanding, like at least one pathway, is just understanding intimately the experience of the body and realizing, oh, this body isn't mine. This body is changing this body can never provide sort of the answer that the ego or the sort of egocentric tendencies of our mind is seeking. So the mind ceases trying to get something from the body. And that's liberating, right? In the same way, it's like a microcosm of what we're learning in the world. 
as long as we keep trying to get something from our partners, from our, all of our different relationships we have with other people, like you're supposed to make me happy. Right? My job here of teaching, it's supposed to make me happy, so get to it, would you? You know, like somehow in this dynamic, I should be getting happy or something from it. And we have that relationship with weather and with food. I've really seen this over the last number of years, this um, relationship to food. You know, just seeing that, you know, and I give myself permission pretty much to eat whatever I want. And really seeing that, not, I, I, I just get that food isn't going to make me happy. I mean, there will be, like I've strategically like have less around and some of you know my wind's gone. And so it's like, you know, 10.30, 11 o'clock rolls around and I have my main meal in the middle of the day and it's okay, anything you want. And it's like, I mean, it's not that I dislike food and I still eat a lot, but, but it's like uh, I'm, my mind is less confused that whatever that experience is going to be, Whatever I put together, whether it's just, you know, whatever's there, I just eat it or I try to sort of really give my sense buds what they want. It's like I don't expect it anymore or as much, certainly, to be any kind of answer. And so eating becomes much more sort of like taking care of the body, sort of, you know, well, it needs something. So we'll give it something so it doesn't complain. So it can do what it needs to do. But not entertainment or not some kind of um, it's going to take care of me. Which I don't know about you, but I know a lot of us, I certainly do, have this relationship in the past where food was like uh, something I grounded into. Well, I'm the person who, who has these nice experiences with, you know, and then just name the kind of foods. So thoughts about this before we move on to the 32 body parts. And maybe I'll just mention, I've been meaning the last few weeks, in that uh, I, I sent the link to this discourse from the Buddha, Mindfulness Immersed in the Body. It's actually... There they are. Um, it's in that packet that, I think it's called Mindfulness of Body Study Guide that Tanisaro Bhikkhu put together. And so one of the discourses in that larger packet is this discourse, and he translates it as mindfulness immersed in the body. And in that longer discourse, um, the Buddha talks about when the mind is immersed in the body, it's very protected. And he says, like, when the mind is not immersed in the body, then when something arises, it really will make an impression on the mind. In the same way that, I don't know if I mentioned this, if you take a, you know, a rock and you throw it into soft clay, that rock is going to make a real impression in the clay. And he says in the same way, if, you don't, if you're not living with mindfulness of the body, because remember, it's our teacher. In short terms, uh, in a sort of a short way, it's teaching us not to grasp, right? Because that mind immersed in the body, the mind is realizing the impermanent nature, like sensations are a river, they're not a thing, they're a flow. 
and they're impersonal. And in that way, they're limited, they're unsatisfying because they can't provide ground. So when the mind isn't immersed in the body, then the mind is considered to be susceptible to mara, you know, all the ignorant or all the not so skillful tendencies of the mind to be seeking security in things that don't give security. So the opposite than the Buddha in this discourse says, you know, in the same way if somebody took a a ball of yarn and threw it against a a door made of solid wood, you know, four-inch thick wood, that ball of yarn is not going to make an impression on that solid door. And in the same way, a body, a mind rather, that's immersed in the body, intimate with the body, understanding the body as it actually is, is not going to be affected by the ups and downs in life, by what comes and goes. And he go, he has other sort of metaphors or similes for for this kind of protection that mind, a mind immersed in the body has. And then at the end of this discourse, he talks about the ten benefits. One conquers displeasure and, de- and delight, and displeasure does not conquer one. One remains victorious over anything, any displeasure that has arisen. One conquers fear and dread, and fear and dread do not conquer them. One. One remains victorious over any fear or dread. One is resistant or, yeah, resistant to cold, heat, hunger, thirst, the touch of gadflies, gladflies and mosquitoes, wind and sun, creepy things, to abusive and hurtful words. One is the sort that can endure bodily feelings that when they arise are painful, sharp, stabbing, fierce, distasteful, disagreeable, and deadly. Right? So that's that would be nice. Being in the body actually protects us from the unpleasant sensations of body. And I, I bet some of you know this quite well. When you get some momentum in your practice, this becomes powerfully obvious. When you have a lot of pain and you're intimate with that pain, you can you can really tolerate it. And it's like the concentration, the steadiness of the attention is the intimacy itself is protecting. But as soon as the concentration wavers, then the unpleasantness of those body bodily sensations are totally overwhelming. People know this experience? And you even, even superficially, we kind of know it like uh, when we've really hurt ourselves there can be an instinct, you know, to kind of run around and to do anything to distract yourself. But there's another instinct of just like kind of going right into the middle of it and somehow the mind understands that that's the safest place to be, not to try to run from it. Because it just, it makes it actually more overwhelming, more hard to bear. So it'd be good to notice that. And then the Buddha goes on to say... um, that this mind immersed in the body also is the cause for what are called in the Buddhist tradition the six higher knowledges, which include deep states of absorption or concentration, the jhanas, and also psychic powers. So, those of you who would like psychic powers, 
immerse your mind in the body. And then the last is Nibbana, or liberation. These are the benefits of a mind immersed in the body. So that should be enough for us, right? (laughs) So some thoughts about that before we go on to the 32 body parts. Just in terms of the different ways of bringing the mind to the body. So we talked about the breath, whole body awareness, mindfulness of postures, and mindfulness of daily activities. So, so far we've covered these trainings that are part of that discourse. Yeah, Andra. Um, I had a question regarding what you mentioned about eating and how for you now it's more of a experience of just providing sustenance to your body and energy for movement and etc. For me, cooking is like almost like a meditative experience. I mean, I just kind of, I don't know. Um, I probably get it a little bit from my mom and my my grandparents, but just sort of, I don't follow directions. I kind of improvise and add spices as it goes and then ends up being something that my husband likes <laughs> at the end. Um, and And it's like, it's sort of been a way for us to reconnect, sitting together, him enjoying the food that I've made for him and us, I should say. So it's just like, I don't know. It's been a way for us to get closer together as well as it's like a meditative process mm-hmm. for me. So I, I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, there are a lot of worldly experiences that are relatively wholesome and the mind has found way our minds find ways to absorb into activities that are relatively pleasant and relatively wholesome. And that's how, in conventional terms, that's how we build a good life, right? And these teachings really start from that place of being relatively skillful at using, finding ways to engage in these relatively pleasant and wholesome activities in life and to have enough of them to be happy in this relative or conventional sense. But then as we do that, the and we continue to pay attention, the mind, although it, it's not dismissing that, because that happiness is real in the same way that hanging out with your dog can be real happiness, or certain moments when you're with your kids, it can be real happiness. Or coming together like we're doing tonight can be, you know, really a, a, a relatively stable, wholesome, pleasant, worldly experience. Coming together, talking about these teachings, it's a good thing for folks to do. But if my sort of sense of self needs common ground, needs that ritual of cooking for my partner, needs playing pool on Friday night with my best buddy needs, you know, and you just fill in the blank, in order to be happy, then that's a tenuous cause for happiness because things can change. So what that does is it doesn't mean we stop having that daily ritual of cooking for our friend or our partner and enjoying a good meal that tastes good and feels good in the body. It just means that while we're doing as much as we can to have wholesome, pleasant activities in our life that aren't harming other people, 
we're using that relative happiness to investigate a happiness that's not dependent on those conditions, right? And so when we look more deeply at the body, we're, we're, what's getting revealed is a way of being with the body, being with the breath, being with daily activities, being with the postures, where the mind is intimate, it's seeing that things are changing, it's seeing that there's nothing here to grasp. That's what dukkha means. It's not worthy of grasping. And it's not self, it's impersonal. So, and the mind, in, in realizing that, the mind realizes the letting go of seeking something from sense experience. It doesn't mean sense experience is bad. Sense experience is exactly what it is when you experience it. That's what sense experience is. So the Buddha's not saying it isn't what you think it is. It just is what you think, or not what you think it is, but it is what you actually experience it as being. But it's not what you think it is. It's what you experience it to be. Not more than that and not less than that. And when the mind lets go of its dependency on sense experience, a kind of freedom the mind previously didn't know begins to arise. So we're interested in a freedom from sense experience, but the freedom from sense experience doesn't depend on the mind having or not having sense experience. That's why it's called a freedom from sense experience or an independence. So how to be in the world, intimate, engaged, compassionate, wanting the world to be a better place. But there isn't a self. We're not cultivating, reinforcing a self who needs the world to be this or that way. Now that kind of engagement is quite resilient because it's free. It can really show up. It's not afraid. Like, you know, when you look at some of the seemingly intractable problems in the world, like racial injustice or economic injustice or, you know, just a sort of tendency to seek consumption as a way of feeling better in life. And, you know, if my engagement, my caring about racial injustice depends on, like, a time schedule, you know, by 2017, I really want all of this to be healed, it's, it's a setup for more suffering or a setup for hating people I think are in the way of things changing or whatever else. So we have to be committed to engagement in a way that is free of the kind of results that are going to happen so that the engagement is for its own sake. It's because that's what a heart that's not afraid, does. It shows up and responds to the suffering that it sees. And it isn't even, doesn't have to be a somebody there. It's just what the heart does when it isn't confused by the idea of separateness. So don't worry about the, you know, what sounds like a really nice routine that you have at home. But just get, begin to intuit and get interested and a heart, a mind, that's not dependent on that continuing. doesn't mean it has to go away, but you're not dependent on it. 
Yeah. Take a couple more and then we'll do the 32 body parts. So maybe if you could pass the mic over to Doug. Oh, yes. And then is it Ellis? Yeah, and then Ellis after Doug. When it comes to extreme body pain, um, when I focus on it, I, I was real sick this past winter. And I thought I was going to die. I just had the stomach flu, but I thought I was going to die. And uh, the more I thought about the pain of the body, the worse it got. So I tricked my mind into fantasizing about something, going into another world, just fantasizing about anything to forget the body pain. And that seemed to work. Yeah, it does work. And as long as I could fantasize about something and be in my mind the better I felt. As soon as I got back to the body, it was, it was really hard. Yeah. And see, that's the thing. I mean, this is true not just in terms of body pain, but it's, in tr- it's true with all the different relationships we have with the world. Like, again, you know, going back to things like economic injustice, it's like it hurts when we're actually aware of the way the world is. Like, there are people who don't have enough food to eat. And I don't want to know that. Like, if I had... You know, if we had video cams in the places where people could really benefit from the money I have in the bank, it would be really hard to bear this life that I'm living. But I choose to not pay attention. And we do the same thing with our body. So, no, I'm not... I totally get that this is not easy to do. It's not easy to be aware of the pain in the body, and it's not easy to be aware of the suffering in the world either. But we at least want to, as an aspiration, we want to hold up in our mind this possibility of being fully awake and not having to rely on turning the attention away. Because the thing about turning our attention away is eventually the truth is going to show itself, right? It's only so long that we can repress or suppress suffering, whether it's within our own body and mind or in our community, cover it up, hide from it. So we don't want, you know, there's, it's such a poignant uh, experience when we thought we were safe and then we realize we weren't safe. And they do this in horror films all the time, don't they? <laughs> you know, you get, there's that sort of scene and everyone, they think they're out of danger. But, you know, if you, if you notice that there's still 20 minutes left, <laughs> you know, there's a little, a few more twists and turns. And just when they get you relaxing, you know, then there's another creepy crawler or another whatever that you thought was dead but not quite dead. And this is the same thing like you described, you know, where you, you work hard at the fantasy. But the thing is, that respite that you have isn't real, right? It's just like uh, you've created a bubble and our minds are good at creating bubbles and inhabiting these bubbles. But those bubbles are going to pop. And the question is, are we going to intentionally, with wisdom, deconstruct these bubbles in a systematic way, because that's actually a better way to do it, or is it going to happen in an unexpected way? Because that's a more disorienting way for the bubble to be burst. So we should always, like, um, ideally, we move through life with a lot of humility, 
knowing that there's a lot that we don't know. And we want to have a sense of the comfort that we have, the privilege that we have in life, that we have to have a sense that it's a tenuous thing and it's built upon uh, processes and relationships that I don't fully understand. And I want to understand because I don't want to be surprised. Like being surprised by death. I was ta- had lunch with some people. Um, some of you maybe caught these uh, series of interviews that Kathy Werzer did with a man with ALS over the years, um, Bruce Kramer. Yeah, so a couple of us had lunch with um, um, Kathy Werzer and couple, a community member and a few other, and another person, Kilko Kariyam and I did, just sort of talking about death and this process and, and just the, like how to keep death in our conversations all life long. Like how to live in this world without being surprised by the way it is. Like being surprised by injustice being surprised by the seamy, unpleasant side of our culture, being unsurprised by the fact that healthy people get sick, good people get hit by cars, you know, bad people win the lottery or get, you know, good things happen so that we're, nothing can happen that would surprise us. Wouldn't that be a good way to go through life? Like nothing would be surprising because the mind didn't expect things to be a particular way or to continue in a particular way. So even though we can create a bubble for ourselves, we want to sort of first aspire to a a more intimate, non-diluted way of being in the moment and then to systematically move in that direction, assuming, right, that the, the assumption is that it will be enlivening. So uh, as nice as it can be when, you know, like a common thing to do when we're sick is to, back in the day when there were actual videotapes, you'd send your partner out to get a bunch of videotapes, you know, and you'd have your sort of hot tea, you know, lemon and honey tea, and you'd have your computer screen or your TV, you know, and you'd wait it out. And you'd just say, okay, I'm just going to not be here until the body starts to feel better. And you'd use your aspirin and whatever else you had, NyQuil, and you'd have your entertainments, trashy magazines and videos, <laughs> and you'd have the beverages to keep the mucus loose, and you'd kind of hang, hang out until it was done. I always remembered at that point when I you know, had the sort of common head cold, because the first few days, you know, it's like you can sleep a lot, but then there would be some point in the middle, often when the symptoms were worse, where... I didn't need sleep like I did the first several days, you know, where you could sleep 12 hours or whatever. And that was great because, you know, it's sort of, you don't feel miserable when you're asleep. But then when you don't need sleep anymore, and there you're just sort of <laughs> knowing that you feel miserable. So we want a different strategy than living our life by not being there. You know, having a life, but the strategy for happiness is just to not be there in the life that we're having and the pain that we're experiencing. Yeah, Ellis, and then we'll move on. Um, in practicing mindfulness of the body this week, I um, 
um, experienced um, kind of a being able to um, experience pain and then being in a group, a safe group of people and being able to um, have mindfulness of the body and not have to, um, not being pulled into the energy of conversing with people in the group. However, my question is that brought me to think about in daily interactions, I find it hard to be able to keep up with also being mindful of the body and daily activities or in my posture when I'm interacting with people. And I'm just wondering if you have any strategy strategies in terms of in social interactions, how to um, be present in the body. Well, the short answer is we have to practice because like you say, it's not our habit. But, you know, like now we're conversing and, you know, we can, like, being aware of the seat against the bench isn't, doesn't have to be in the way of being in conversation with someone. But it, it's like a new skill. And it, in a way it's like touch and go. The mind's sort of not necessarily doing both at the same time, but it can go back and forth. And if with practice, like with training, we've cultivated a, an intimacy in the body, with the body experience, then when we do touch back into the body and the, the sort of uh, momentum of wisdom, like the wisdom of being intimate, being forgiving, being non-reactive, being non-controlling, being compassionate, then when the next moment, when I'm aware of you, those qualities, those good qualities that are there in the mind's relationship with the body, they'll be there in relating to the person you're in conversation with. So that's why, like in the small groups, which we'll have again next week, you know, the invitation is to be really there in the experience of the body when you're listening, and then even when you're talking, to keep coming back. And now I notice, because I've been doing Qigong for a while, that I, I use that sort of basic Qigong posture when I'm standing and talking to people. Because my mind now is in the habit of being in the experience of embodiment when I bend my knees a little bit, when I'm sort of shifting my weight back and forth. And it may look a little weird, but, you know, it's <laughs> generally no one said anything yet. And it, the nice thing is it helps the body stay relaxed and then the mind tends to stay relaxed. Like I was saying at the beginning, when the body is fluid, the mind stays fluid too, not fixed. So we just have to train. We have to practice and try different things, you know, whatever, basically whatever works. A couple of other things that tend to help, like knowing uh, where the body tends to first get tight and checking, right? Oh, there you go, honey. Oh, you, does that really need to be tight? Maybe, maybe the jaw can relax or maybe the belly can soften, you know, or maybe the shoulders can, instead of being up, can go down or whatever it is. So, and then that could just be a simple moment of compassion, like you don't need, you don't need to defend yourself in that way right now. That tightening of the body isn't helping. So just checking those places in the body that tend to get armored because of habit. And then, of course, you know, if you take 
five or ten minutes every day and just lie down in the middle of the day and just practice physically relaxing and softening the body for five minutes, then that experience of the body being undefended and unarmored just is more near. So you, you know, like you remember it better. So you'll notice when the body is armored and tight and that will wake you up. You mean so, sitting practice? Hmm? Do you mean like sitting practice? Uh, just a special time. Just a special time to lie down. Yeah, I would do like savasana, the yoga pose. You're just lying in the corpse pose. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and just get very familiar to, with what it feels like for the body to be released. So you can even do, you know, part of that, like if you do deep relaxation in a yoga class, they're asking you to tense the whole body and then release. You can even do it part by part, you know, tensing and releasing different parts and then tensing the whole body and releasing a few times. Because you're basically relearning what it feels like for the body to be not tight. And then it serves as a barometer because then in your interactions, when it gets tight, it will stand out more because it's different. But if it's always tight, it doesn't stand out. And so we're not going to recognize, oh yeah, there's the body again. Because it's tight, it's unpleasant, and then we do what Doug was talking about is we try not to be in the experience of the body because it doesn't feel good. And then more and more over the decades, we're less and less in the body. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, as an older person to not want to be in the body, you know, when we get older. So, but remember, there's no way to be disconnected from the body without, in some greater sense, being disconnected from the life that's being lived, right? Because this is a bodily life we're living. So if we take a strategy of slowly being less and less aware, connected to the body, we're basically taking a strategy of not being alive, not being awake to the life that's being lived as a strategy to have a good life. You know, so it's really not wise. But it's understandable that we do it. But it happens because we're not paying close enough attention to see the long-term implications of that strategy of not being embodied, not being in the experience of the body. So speaking of that, there's another way, and we'll do this for the next, well, the last three weeks, these last three trainings. So we have mindfulness of the 32 body parts, mindfulness of the four elements, and mindfulness of the de, uh, the falling apart, or the, what do they call it? The corpse meditation often, but there's decomposition of the body. Thanks. So the body falls apart when it dies. So these are three exercises or trainings. We're actually training the mind to think, yes, think, about the body in these ways. Because when you think about the body in one of these three ways, you're not going to think about the body as we normally think about the body. And the way I normally think about my body and bodies generally is, you know, I don't, like in terms of the 32 body parts, I don't really address that at all, the skin provides a nice wrapping and I just take the body as this particular shape, form, right? And, you know, it's a very um, simplistic abstraction of 
what actually the body is. And then once I have this sort of contained sense of the body, then it's easier to equate a sense of me with this, you know, shape. But the body isn't the shape. I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't a shape to the body, but it's a relatively superficial attribute of the body, the particular shape that it has. You know what they say with kids, you know, the sort of ten, fe- or ten fingers, ten toes sort of thing. You know, like, oh yeah, it's a human being. You know, it sort of looks, it has the shape we expect the body to have. So, but that's a, a relatively superficial thing. And then we tend to, just based on that, um, attribute a lot of characteristics. But if we were to break down, which we'll do a little bit right now, you know, if we're to break down the body into parts, you know, put the nails here and the skin there and the muscles there, First of all, my pile of skin isn't so different than your pile of skin. My pile of bones is not so different than your pile of bones. My vessel holding all the blood or all the saliva or all the... It's not so different. And the sense of the body being personal, being me, really falls apart. And the thing is, we know that this is true. So it's not like, you know, some pure fantasy. We're actually sort of just, yeah, well, the body is made up of these parts. So in the discourse that we've been reading at different times during this course, this four foundations of mindfulness, so we're just covering the first section, which is on mindfulness of the body, and in that, the body, the Buddha teaches six ways to be mindful of the body, the breath and the whole body, um, postures, and uh, daily activities, you know, when re- reaching, know the body's reaching. And now the last three, the fourth is mindfulness of these body parts. So here's what the Buddha says there in that section. Furthermore, just as if a sack with openings at both ends were full of various kinds of grain, wheat, rice, mung beans, kidney beans, sesame seeds, husked rice, And a person with good eyesight pouring it out were to reflect, this is wheat, this is rice, these are mung beans, over here I have kidney beans, these are the sesame seeds, this is husk rice. In the same way, practitioners, reflect on this very body from the soles of the feet up, from the crown of the head down, surrounded by skin, full of various kinds of things. Now sometimes this word is a suba, in Pali, sometimes it gets translated as disgusting or unwholesome or unclean. But the point here is not that these different things like, you know, your kidney or your heart or your skin, it's not that they're bad, but they're just, these things are just not worthy of attachment, not worthy of taking personally. And that's the point, right? It's like, you know, this body feels really, like from my conventional point of view, this body feels very personal. But when I clip my nails and, you know, I'm really trying to be good about collecting them so I don't step on them with my bare feet, and you got that little pile of na- clipped nails, right? And I look at those clipped nails, 
I do not have a personal relationship with those nails. <laughs> and there is, and especially if they're my wife's nails, there's a kind of a disgusting feeling, you know, like, oh yeah. Or if somebody leaves, you know, flecks of skin or hair in the sink, right? So that's the sense like, oh yeah, that's not the part of my wife I adore. That's something else, right? So that's the feeling that we're trying to cultivate. Now, sort of, I'm not done reading this, but there's an interesting side story here. <laughs> Buddhism is such a funny training. And, you know, you don't know, I don't know what to do with stories like this, but I'll say it anyway. So anyway, at the time of the Buddha, so this training of being aware of the body parts is big in the Buddhist tradition. Even like monks and nuns, it's like in the formal ordination of becoming a nun, a Buddhist nun or a Buddhist monk, the first meditation technique you're given is being aware of the first five body parts, hair of the head, nails, teeth, I forget what the other two are. But just as your first reflection, just to kind of bring to mind, oh yeah, that's, these are just teeth, nails, hair. So it's a big deal. So the Buddha taught this at the time. And, uh, and to some, I think, monks, and then left to practice in seclusion. Yes, the Buddha, even the Buddha, fully awake, would go and do retreats. Interesting, isn't it? So anyway, and then he came back and he noticed that there were fewer monks around. And he asked, what happened to all the monks that were here before I left? And I forget if it was Sariputta who was in charge. He said, well, some of them committed suicide because as they were doing these body part they started to get really disgusted, you know, with life. And so that's why the metaphor the Buddha used is something that isn't charged. Like, you got a big bag, gunny sack, filled with a lot of seeds, a lot of different grains or whatever. And all he's asking is, you just sit down in a relaxed way, and you just, like a child, you know, they organize the blocks that are round, they put them in one pile, the blocks that are square go in another pile. You know, the red things go there, the blue things go there. That's what kids do through preschool, right? They learn how to classify and organize things. That's what the Buddha is saying. Do that with your body and notice what the effect is on your mind. So that's our invitation for this week. Not to be disgusted or repulsed, but to cultivate a different idea about the body. We got these internal organs, we got the kidney there. And use your imagination, and I sent you a website, and you can actually get photographs of all of these 32 body parts there. So if you're not good at visualizing or imagining, some of you are nurses and doctors, so you have an advantage. But you also have callous defense systems that have helped you survive all these years <laughs> in the profession. So advantages and probably some disadvantages. But anyway, so this website's quite good and it will give you a little bit of background on each of these organs. And then just like you're setting them out in front of you. And just and as you set them out in front of you, you want to reflect. And you, you know, you can like you might even want to say the name of the part, you know, kidney, nails of the body, teeth, all the bones, and on and on like that. And then as you're looking in your imagination at each of these, you know, just nicely organized, you're, you're one of those competent kids, you know how to 
and you don't confuse things like hair of the body is different than hair of the head, you know. So you just got all these different piles, and you're just like, is that me? I mean, just a natural question. No, that's just a pile of hair. That's just a pile of skin. That's just a bunch of internal organs. It's just the lungs. So it's, you really see, no, that's not me. They're just these different parts of the body. So we're transforming this very superficial idea that either I am this body or whoever I am is in this body or whoever I am owns this body. But it, somehow there's a very, you know, in a conventional sense, a very strong link between the sense of me and this body. And we're, we're just sort of challenging that. No, no, no. The body's just these different piles of stuff. Okay? So let's do a little bit of that before we end. We have just a few minutes. We won't go through all the parts, but we'll go through some of them. Well, let me just finish reading this. In this body, there are hair, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, spleen, fat, tears, skin oil, saliva, mucus, fluid of the joints, urine. In this way, one remains focused internally on the body in and of itself, or focused externally on the body, in and of itself. Or one remains focused on the phenomena of arising and passing, or both arising and passing, with regard to the body. Or one's mindfulness that there is this body is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And one remains independent, not sustained by, not clinging to, anything in the world. This is how a practitioner remains focused on the body, in and of itself. Let's just do a short reflection on the body parts. So just sitting comfortably, just for five minutes or so. Taking a couple of relaxed breaths, just feel the breath coming in, feel the breath going out. And beginning with this clear sense that there is this body here. And there are these hairs, hair of the head. And so just a sense of the hair falling out, being gathered, placed in a nice pile, noticing the length and the color and the texture, all the hair of the head, you've all seen a pile of hair at a barber beauty salon, we know what that looks like. And then if we had a way to simply remove the skin without any pain, just peeling it away, assuming it would come off nicely, 
feeling the texture of the skin. We know what supple leather feels like. Gathering the skin, rolling it into a little ball, no shape, just a pile of skin sitting there next to the pile of hair. Notice the color, the shape, having a sense of its impersonal nature, this pile of skin sitting here next to the pile of hair. And of course, with the skin removed, we just allow the blood to drain into a clear jar, large jar, of course, many pints. We see its color. So we have the big jar of blood. We have the pile of skin. We have the hair of the head. We can remove, start to remove the flesh, separating the flesh from the skeletal structure, the muscles. And of course we know what that's like, whether you eat meat or not. We know what that's like. Just imagining it's easy to remove or you have a really good scissor or knife. You're just creating piles of meat, of flesh. Stacking it, piling it, removing it from the, how it connects to the sinews, tendons, ligaments. You got this big pile of flesh next to the big jar of blood and the skin and the hair of the head. And we've snipped or clipped the tendons and the ligaments holding the bones together so we're able to gather the bones, all individual bones now not connected with one another including the skull, the tiny bones and the big bones. You just put them in a big pile. Just a heap of bones next to the heap of skin and all the flesh, the hair, the head, and the big jar of blood. You just see it sitting there. And we put out our organs. There are many organs, of course. We've got the brain, the heart, the lungs. All the digestive organs, stomach, the liver, kidneys. We have the big pile of intestines, the big intestine and the little one. So just categorizing all these internal organs. We have the eyes, the different glands, 
We have the reproductive organs. Just putting them all down. And just finishing with all the remaining parts, whatever comes to your imagination. But let's just take the last minute or two, just a sense of all of these piles sitting here. The meat or flesh of the body, all the tendons and ligaments, cartilage in one pile, all the bones in another, all the organs neatly laid out, the skin, the hair, the head. The nails can be in a pile. Is this me? Is this mine? Is this what I am? So remember as you do it to really check your attitude so you're not um, cultivating aversion, right? We don't need more aversion to the body. And if for whatever reason it doesn't feel useful, just go back to the practices that do feel useful for you. But it is worthwhile, you know, don't, don't be put off. Like give it a little time before you just say, oh no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, there's a, when my wife has done a course on anatomy at the McAllister for a number of years, she calls it experiential anatomy. She teaches at McAllister. And, and, uh, and so on the previous course, um, on the resources, you'll see some links to some of those websites. There's a lot of good websites. And it's very interesting to observe, like just even on the internet, on video, to observe an autopsy. It, it really affects the mind in a deep way. We don't realize that the mind is defending itself against this reality that there's plumbing, you know, that there's all this sort of the mechanism, biological mechanisms of the body. I'm not saying that's the absolute truth or that's the sort of full truth. But what it does do, that reality of biology, is it pops the bubble of whatever we are more superficially imagining the body to be. And that's really what this is about. It's not about finding the truth. It's about popping delusion that this body is, you know, like when we look at each other. I don't look at Alex and have a sense that there's a a pump just, you know, what, a half an inch and a half inside that shirt? You know, I mean, imagine if we saw that. Imagine that, you know, when, or there's a brain, you know, or there are eyeballs. 
We look at somebody's eyes, you know, the deep, dreamy pools, <laughs> or the fleshy lips, you know, the things that we're attracted to in people. You know, but what is it? So this is what I mean about popping delusion. It doesn't mean we want to be disgusted when we see somebody walk by and go, oh my God, you're just a bunch of blood and meat. (laughs) But we don't want to have the opposite. We don't want to sort of like, you're a sexy, you know, whatever. We want to have a more neutral, cool relationship to our body and other people's bodies too. And just explore whether that's actually enlivening and freeing, right? Or does that create a real weight in your life as you explore this practice? And we'll talk about it next week in our small group. So it would be nice to have something to share. And I'll I'll get those links from the autopsies out to you um, soon. But you can find a lot of that just by either at our our webpage or on your own. You can find uh, good things online. But this website that I sent today, just at 5 o'clock, has some good pictures, so you can just start there. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.